0: Well, it's good to be together. It's good to to be able to worship here. I was thinking this week with Father's Day, some lessons I learned from my dad. I remember it was uh, 1997. I think I was a junior um, in high school. I used to think that was like young when I say that in churches. Now I'm, I feel old in this congregation. But it was the late 90s. I was in high school, and my dad sat me and my sister down and and said. Uh, Kids, it's uh, it's gonna be some changes around here. It's gonna be different, and um, we were like, "Well, what's what's happening?" And they said, "Well, you you know, um, your uncle, Uncle Herman, is gonna uh, he's gonna come live with us. He's gonna come stay with us." Um, we knew our uncle had had some problems with alcohol, but we didn't know what had happened the last few years and the struggles he had faced, and and my dad said, uh, "You know, he's really struggled. He's." Uh, his wife had left him, he lost his job, and he turned to drinking more and more and more until finally got a call from a local hospital who my dad was listed as, as closest of kin, that he was, uh, his liver was so bad he was on the last of days unless he got help. And so my dad went to helping and brought him into our home. But my dad took it as a lesson for us kids to say, listen, Um, I want you to do right. I want you to follow the right path. I want what's best for you. But I want you to always remember this, that I and your mother, we will be here for you. That we care for you no matter how bad it may be. You can always come to us. We want to care. We want to love. We want to support you and help you get back on the right track. Life Lessons. Maybe you have life lessons from your dad. Uh, John uh, speaks to us here in this chapter um, uh, as a father does to his children. If you wouldn't mind rising one more time as we hear God's word, this is from 1 John chapter 2, 1-6. We said last week it's more of a sermon than a letter. Um, John writes here these words. My little children, I write these things to you so you may not sin." But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may be sure that we are in Him. Whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. John writes to Him uh, as a father. It's uh, John says, "My little children." (laughs) Is he is he being derogatory? Is he being patronizing? Now John's older, John has told us in the first few words of uh, the chapter or the book that he, he saw, he observed, he touched, he heard the very words of the Lord Jesus. He was with him, the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's the same John of the Gospel of John. He's writing probably to the church at Ephesus or to the circula- or this letter to be circulated to the churches uh, we find in Revelation. And so he's writing to teach them Wisdom, fatherly wisdom, little children, he says. He seeks in this letter to reassure his audience of their faith. And by doing so, he focuses on what Jesus has done and who he is. And he assumes, verses 3 to 6, we'll focus mostly on verses 1 and 2. As we looked last week, relates again to 3 and 6 about how we live our life. But he assumes that if we understand who Jesus is and the magnitude and the gravity of who he is, that it will impact how we live. If we, we will walk in the light as he is in the light. So we're going to follow John's lead and see what he has to say about Jesus. My little children, he says in verse 1, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. John told us in chapter 1 that what? If we say we haven't sinned, we're a liar. Which means, he says, I'm writing to you that you may not sin, that's my desire, that's my fatherly desire, I don't want you to sin. But, he says, if, we, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. I don't want you to sin, but you're going to, I've already told you, if you said you don't, you're a liar. So it's not a matter of if, but a matter of when we sin. And when we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus is the advocate. You know, advocacy is a powerful thing. Um, we have a friend across the bay. She's uh, served as a guardian ad litem. She, uh, the, the court has appointed her a number of cases with foster kids to, to be uh, an independent third party to represent them, to speak to the courts and to the lawyers on behalf of the child, to speak what is best for the child. She's an advocate. Advocacy is a powerful thing. What's an advocate do? An advocate uh, represents someone else. They seek to sympathize or empathize, to have compassion for someone, and then they speak on behalf of that person to another person for their best interest, on their behalf. They speak for someone else. You're probably asking, why do we need advocates? Why can't everyone just speak for themselves? An advocate represents someone because not everyone has the same voice or the same opportunity. Maybe uh, they don't have the same expertise. They don't have the same uh, understanding. They're on the same platform. They don't have the same privilege. And so they need someone to speak on their behalf. They don't have the clout, so they need someone else to represent them on their behalf for their goodwill. An advocate speaks for those that don't have a voice or for whose voice is not heard. Who do we advocate for? Um, there's lots of good examples. Um, there's a good ministry here in Mobile. It's called I Heart World. Anybody familiar with it? It's a good ministry. They, uh, they advocate for women who have been sex trafficked or involved in sex trafficking. So these women are in situations where they don't have a voice or they don't have an opportunity to get out or they don't have the means or the the know-how. And so this ministry speaks for, represents, provides resources for them. Advocate. We advocate for the unborn, right? The truly voiceless, the vulnerable. They have no words. They can't speak. They might kick inside the belly, but they can't speak for themselves. And so we, or good advocates, speak on their behalf. Advocates speak for the poor. Scripture speaks of this. Those without resources or without opportunity or without platform. We speak for them because no one else is advocating for their rights. We've seen these last weeks and months, we've been exposed that many of our black brothers and sisters in the faith are asking white churches, white believers to help advocate for them. Because their voice hasn't been heard. It hasn't had the same opportunity. It hasn't had the same platform. I had a good lunch this week with an African-American pastor downtown. We have a friendship. And he said basically that. We need you. We need your, the church to speak on our behalf. To understand. Even as we seek to understand. And to advocate. We could go on. We advocate for those who literally can't speak. Disabled, right? Our brother Bryce here. We speak for Bryce because Bryce can't speak, so we advocate on his behalf or for refugees or for immigrants. If you read the Bible, it's over and over and over. Read the Old Testament law, right? The widow and the orphan, the poor, the alien, the disenfranchised, right? The marginalized injustices, so we speak for someone else. We see good ministries doing those very things. All of these groups I mentioned to varying degrees are vulnerable and don't have the opportunity or the privilege to speak in such a way. But here's the question for us. Why in the world would we advocate for someone else? I mean, all of us have difficult lives. We all got our own trouble. We all got our own struggles. We all got busyness. We all all have been impacted by the fallen world. We all have life and challenges and bills to pay. Why would we spend our time, our energy, our effort, our labor, why would we risk to advocate for another? There's a lot of answers in the world. Here's the Christian answer. Because you've been advocated for. My little children, I write in these things that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. What does that mean? That means we didn't have the opportunity to plead our case before the Father. We didn't have the rights, we didn't have the privilege, we didn't have the status to speak for ourselves. So Jesus Christ, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, stands before the Father and he represents us as our advocate. There's a difference. Many of the groups I mentioned, if not all the groups, have been mistreated. There's been injustice, and so we advocate for justice. Do what is right. We seek justice. The unborn, it's it's unfair to abort. They can't speak, so we speak for them. Or for women who have been sex trafficked, we speak for them. Or for our brothers and sisters that have been judged by the color of their skin, we speak for them. But you and I, we haven't been falsely accused or mistreated. We haven't been done, we haven't been done wrong. God has not uh, unjustly accused us. And so Jesus, when he advocates for us, he doesn't, um, he doesn't plead our innocence. He doesn't say, they're, they're really good people, you just got to get to know them, you know, spend some time with them. Uh, Ben's a better guy than he comes across, you know, give him some time and he'll turn the corner. Jesus doesn't stand before the Father and advocate based on the goodness in us or that justice is not served or that we were wrongly accused. We advocate for others because Jesus advocated for us and he advocated for us based on the merits of Christ Jesus pleads before the Father based on his own merit, his own righteousness, his own goodness. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Last week we said God is light, which meant God's not only, does he illumine the world, does he reveal the word, but he also, his moral purity is so great that it sets the ethical trajectory. It sets the way the world is to go. He is that pure. In him there is no darkness. And Jesus stands before God and pleads His own righteousness in our place as our advocate. He represents us to the Father. is that amazing? (laughs) He advocates for us. Our elder brother stands. Do you know your hope is in his advocacy? Do you know if we're compelled to advocate for anybody, it's based on the fact that he has spoken for us. What is it, verse 2? What is the basis does he plead? What does he say, verse 2? He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. What does that mean? It means not only is Jesus Christ our advocate, John says, but he's also our sacrifice. It means he stands before the Father and he says, "Um, I've been resurrected. I've been vindicated. My life is righteous. My death is sufficient. I have been the sacrifice for sinners like you and me. I have fulfilled all that you have required in the law. There's some debate here, not to get too technical, but there's some debate, translation, what this word propitiation means. Um, Some modern translation, the word says expiation Propitiation and expiation. Um, expiation is the idea that sin is removed from our presence. It is, we are cleansed, it's taken away, guilt is removed, it's sin outside the camp. And it's certainly true that Jesus expiates our sin. He removes it. But a better translation is what the text says today is that Jesus is our propitiation. And propitiation speaks to the turning away of wrath by an acceptable sacrifice. So expiation is removal, but propitiation is to turn away wrath, or to absorb, or to take, to avert wrath. So He is our sacrifice that absorbs and propitiates, or takes away wrath says, for our sins, takes the wrath for our sins. Now, who's the wrath coming? Where's it coming from? It's God's wrath. So what we're saying is that God, the Father, sends his wrath against God, the Son, in our place. Do you know that's what the gospel says? It's the wrath of God. Wow, that that seems harsh, doesn't it? We don't, don't, that's not very popular. Several hymns have been changed. Uh, You may know this, right? To take away the the wrath of God was satisfied, you know, Christ alone. That's been removed in many churches. We don't use the word propitiation. We soften it to expiation because I like the idea of my sin being removed, but the idea that God is wrathful or God is angry, I just don't like that. I like the God that's loving and kind and grace-filled and gracious. And he certainly is that. But the truth of the matter is that Jesus absorbs the wrath of God. Listen to this, John 3, 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains upon him. We think we're doing God a favor by making him only about love and mercy. But actually, we're demonstrating that we know so little about both our own sin and so little about the love of God when we take away the wrath of God. Because we said a few weeks ago, for you to really love, you've got to really hate, right? To really love means you have to hate things that destroy the things you love. And God hates sin, God hates corruption, God hates injustice, God hates evil. So much so that it must be punished, it must be dealt with. So we must understand that Jesus is our propitiation. The wrath due us for our sin, for our rebellion, is taken upon Jesus. Jesus' torment in the Garden of Gethsemane. May this cup pass from me. Jesus' suffering to the cross Jesus' suffering on the cross, is not because things were going pretty well. It wasn't, everything's kind of hunky-dory, right? God and man were... It's because sin had stained the world. And so, we had rebelled against the good, benevolent Father, King. We raised our fists at Him. And God loved us so much... He sent Jesus in our place. To wrap up these points, you might be wondering, why in the world did we have Suzanne read Leviticus chapter 16? She only read part of it. I didn't know if you could handle all all the verses. That's this the Day of Atonement uh, in the Old Testament? Uh, The beautiful thing about it is it shows both expiation and propitiation. The Day of Atonement, there were two, two goats. One of them, the priest, would put his hands... Uh, on the goat and he would send it outside the camp to wander, to be sent out, to be removed from the people. That's expiation. Sin is no more. He is the scapegoat. But the other goat, what, what happened? happen? would be slaughtered as a sin offering. His blood would be sprinkled to cover, to cleanse, to absorb the wrath of God for our sin propitiation in the great day of atonement once a year for Israel they saw both and Jesus has done both for us do you know the sacrifice he's our advocate he's also our sacrifice is that personal to you John's going to assume that this makes a big deal because he's going to call us how to live, but he doesn't want to just tell us, to be better, try harder, do more. He wants to ground us in this to such a level that we understand it that we say, oh yeah. Oh yeah, we'll live differently. One aside here before we move to the final point. Uh, I wasn't going to address it, but I figured someone's going to ask me afterwards. It says, not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Some have said, well see, Jesus dies for the whole world. There's a sense of sort of universalism, right? Jesus' blood covers everyone universally. Uh, It's paid for. Um, We just read God's wrath remains upon some, so Scripture speaks uh, otherwise. We also know that when Jesus talks about his sacrifice, it's done in a substitutionary way, which should mean something to you. It means it's in your place. It's for you, Isaiah 53, right? He suffered for us, particularly redeeming us. John says that all the Father gives to me will come to me, and I will lose none of whom have been given to me. Jesus dies for his people. His sheep know his voice. So, what does it mean for the sins of the whole world? I think it means what he means in the Old Testament when. It says to Abraham that all of the nations of the world will be blessed through you. All the peoples of the world will be blessed through Abraham. Does that mean every single person is going to experience the blessing in Abraham? Probably not. It means Abraham is the vehicle through which blessing comes to the world. Or well, the Old Testament says all uh, the Old Testament sacrifice are for all of Israel. Does that mean every Israelite was right with the Lord? Were faithful? No. Some were wicked and some were cut off. But the sacrifices were for Israel. John has said, little children, he is being very personal. He says, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, but not just ours, guys. But for the whole world. For everyone who would believe his sin, his sacrifice covers their sin. That includes us today. That includes the church throughout history. It says "It's that all of history, all of redemption, all of righteousness is centered on the cross. So that that salvation in Christ, our sins forgiven, is centered at the cross. But so are all blessings we experience. Did you know that? All goodness, the, the fact that the Son... And the rain comes on the just and the unjust. The fact that we have seasons, the fact that we have goodness, the fact that we have blessings, the fact that we have a, a great steak and a nice wine, the great, that we enjoy these things irrespective of our faith is a blessing flowing from the cross. Did you know that? Now salvation is particular to those who believe in Jesus, right? Salvation is through Jesus, His work for His people, and yet all blessing. Colossians 1 flows through the cross of Christ. So Jesus dies in that way. He dies for his people, but through his people and through Christ, there is blessing to the world. That makes sense to you. If we miss this, we miss that it's personal. Salvation is personal. Jesus dies for us particularly. We miss the cost of what Jesus has done for us. If we miss the cost of his sacrifice and his advocacy, then these final words will not make any sense. Let me read these to you, verse 3 to 6. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in, in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Do you hear that last phrase? We ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Uh, The kindness of God has, has no limits. Not only has he sacrificed for us, not only does he advocate on behalf of us before the Father, his people, but he also teaches us how to live. He shows us The way he's modeled for us. Jesus is our example. He's so much more than an example, but he is certainly an example. Um, Good theologians, they do lots of good theology. You know, we've talked about propitiation and expiation and talk about advocacy. We talk about all these terms. Um, But at the end, you know what they always say? So what? Right Or the, how then shall we live? If this is true, if he's an advocate, if he's our sacrifice for his people, what difference does it make? John says, we ought to walk as he walked. We ought to keep his commandments. If he had just said, walk as I walked, and there's not the other part, it's just like every other religion, right? Just try harder, do better, get it together. But he grounds us in what he has done. Um, One of the things I love about kids and I love about Josiah at his age is that um, kids, um, little kids mimic their parents. You know, they want to do everything you do. You know, if I scratch my head and Josiah scratches his head, if I put my hand in the air, he puts his hand in the air. If I tie my shoes, he tries to tie his shoes. They want to do what you want to do. Um, And that's what we're called to do. Our our Father has sent His Son for us to love us, to give Himself, to walk in a way that is honorable, in the light as He is the light, and we're called here to follow, to mimic His ways, to do what He does. Um, He said, I don't want you to sin. I don't want you to sin, but if you do, you have an advocate, and therefore live this way. Remember, as we close, one of the motivations for John is that he was uh, engaging the Gnostics. Um, This is early Gnosticism, the idea there's some kind of special knowledge. A lot of that special knowledge uh, was related to uh, certain experiences someone may have in the faith. Uh, The Gnostics claimed new revelation or they claimed new experiences, something to add to. In in some ways it's new age, you know, they had new experiences, they tried new cool things. Here's the way to God, here's the path, here's the spiritual journey. And uh, John's going to say, you want to know the way, you want to know the right path. Do you keep the commandments? You know? John's going to give us a test to to know how we're doing in the faith. Yes, it's about the heart. It's about our connection. It's about how we feel with the Lord. That's true. But there's also an objective part of it, right? You know, imagine going to your quarterly business meeting and your boss says, how are things going? You're like, everyone seems happier, you know? Everyone's, you know, they're encouraged. And he says, no, like, I need some numbers. Like, let me see a spreadsheet. Let me see some data. Are we meeting our goals? Are we meeting our objectives? Are we keeping up what we're supposed to? Is How's production? John gives us that, he says. This is a test of the faith to assure us how we're doing. How do we know if we're in the faith? How do we say we know Him and yet live a different way? Are we obedient to the commands? Are we following the Lord, This doesn't mean our obedience earns our salvation or merits our salvation. We've already said we are, our salvation is earned and merited based on the work of Christ who's advocating for us. And yet it should result in a life. Do we follow his word? Do we read his word? Is God's word alive to us? These are strong language. It says if we don't, then we are a liar. And the truth is not in us. I told you last week John is in this difficult place. He's a really good pastor. He's trying to do two things. He's trying to um, comfort the worried, and he's trying to worry the comfortable at the same time. right? Those that are afraid they lost their salvation, he's trying to provide assurance. There's some objection. Uh, Jesus has done it. He's faithful. He advocates for you. And then there's the complacent. Eh, it's whatever. They're not really taking it serious, and so he's trying to worry. He's trying to stir them up a little bit. What's your life? Can you measure it? He's done that in just a few verses. Between two verses, he's assured and he's challenged. And so there's tension. It's the gospel. It's the third road, as Ryan often says. It's the way of Jesus. John models for us that we hold fast to what Jesus has done. He modeled how to live. He provided the sacrifice by which we might have life. And he's taken that sacrifice. And even today, Hebrews says, he intercedes for us in prayer. And he goes to the Father. And he doesn't say, these people are so great. (laughs) He says, these people are in me. These people are united to me. They're with me. And the Father says, I'm pleased. For you are my beloved son, and you and I are given the status of sons and daughters. If that's true, and it's true, do you need more motivation? Do you need more oomph to seek to follow, to confess, to walk with Jesus? May we marvel at the work of Christ for us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you.